0: Welcome to The Secret Life of Cookies, where we try to solve the world's problems through the miracle of carbohydrates, one recipe at a time, with host Marissa Rothkoff and her dog, Bosco. Hello, folks, and welcome to The Secret Life of Cookies. Oof, I have a good one for you today, Dahlia Lithwick, she of Amicus Podcast. Slate's senior legal correspondent and the author of truly a must-read book called Lady Justice is on today as my guest, and we managed, you know, to talk about the most recent threats to democracy and still be full of hope. So there's a lot to be said for that. You will be able to find the recipe for the tattik that we make, which is a Persian rice dish, on my Substack at marissarothkopf.substack.com. And also, over on my Substack, we are going gangbusters with my holiday cookie-thana go-go with loads of recipes for baking this holiday season. So you could find some, bake along, and listen. And I'd appreciate that. On with the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Secret Life of Cookies. I have a very special guest, as close to my kitchen as I can get her, but I'd like to get you in my kitchen. It's Dahlia Lithwick, the person I refer to as the 10th and best Supreme Court justice, the judge of the justices. But we are here to talk about a lot of things, mostly your book, which I have over here, this beautifully pink covered book called Lady Justice, Women, the Law and the Battle to Save America. You have been a senior legal correspondent for Slate for a number of years, and you have spent a lot of time in the Supreme Court. Um, That's why I call you my favorite justice. But we're also going to be doing something else very, very special today, which is making Tadig. And before we get into that, I think I'll let you speak.
1: Hi, Dahlia. Well, first of all, hi, and thank you for having me. And second of all, I'm going to just continuously lean against the stove and turn it on and off for like comedy. comedy Yeah. But mostly I want to thank you for waving my book around because I was trying as I was sort of staging how this was going to go. I was Mm -hmm. trying to think of where I could sort of artfully lean my book against the blender or something and be like, oh, it's always, always right here at the blender. So like you (laughs) have the need for me to disgrace myself. So thank you.
0: (laughs) That's my job. And for any of you um, who are deep state, who would go the full mile with the deep state and also have listened to the deep state radio podcast with, I think his name is David. How did you pronounce the last name? I think it's Roth. Rothrop, something like that. David Rothenkopfen, you just came off that podcast. We are a competitive family, however, and I'm going to do my best to make this a very different, very better because I speak gooder podcast, but we also, we do different things. You know what I mean? There's no point in comparing us. And the last thing a road cup is, is competitive. (laughs) It's not at all. Do you do you think of yourself as a competitive person, Ms. Lithwick?
1: I do. Are you gonna call me by weird honorifics? Because that's gonna kiss yes. me out immensely. Uh, <laughs> uh, I once, after clerking at my judge's chambers, I once answered my phone and said, Dahlia Lithwick's chambers. And then I realized I <laughs> actually didn't have chambers. They were not my chambers. They were anyway, so that happened. And also you are so unlike your brother because he just sits in that Bond villain chair. And like, look, you're like standing like bipedal on two feet. So already, like, there's so okay. So, you want to hear my competitive story and then we'll cook? Yes, please. This is a story about how I was hugely pregnant with my firstborn child. You've already talked to me long enough. People who are meeting me for the first time, like, a minute is long enough to know that I'm the most intense person in the world. (laughs) <laughs> my husband is this like super lovely Tai Chi, like spiritual, he's a beautiful artist and he's just like chill. Right. So I'm hugely pregnant. And my husband says we should go on a silent retreat. And I'm like, are you out of your freaking mind? I can't be silent for like six seconds. And he was like, I think we should do this. And everybody was like passing me notes saying like, I'll come get you. Like, just there's my phone <laughs> when you snap after for the first 40 minutes. So this was going on. And then We went to the silent retreat and like it was silent and quite terrible. And But I was (laughs) keeping silent. And on the third day, my lovely, it was freezing. We were in Virginia still. We lived in Charlottesville. It was my husband solicitously turned to me one night and said, are you warm enough? Would you like me to turn the heat up in this like y thing? And I pulled out the pen and pencil that they give you to communicate. And I literally wrote, are you sitting down? You're standing up. I wrote, I won. I won. I won. I won the silent retreat. I won. And so after when it was time to talk, after five days of keeping silence and like meditating and mm-hmm. communing, the first words out of my face were,
0: I won this supper. So
1: <laughs> beat that with your brother.
0: I don't think you can. No. I don't think a road cop has never been silent in any situation, ever. That is a problem that we have. <laughs> that is a fantastic story.
1: Stop now. It's not gonna get any better at this point.
0: No, no, not at all. Uh, I'm just impressed that you could do a silent retreat. Honestly, like, what was that like? Did, did Was it beneficial? Should we all go do it?
1: I mean, it was, you know, I, I didn't, <laughs> I will confess, like, I brought a lot of face packs and, like, scr- <laughs> Like, I sort of treated it like a spa for my outside instead of my inside, which is not in keeping with the, like, yoga methodology. It's really interesting to be silent for five days. I mean, it is fascinating. And other than the fact that I spoiled it by being a competitive asshole, like it was kind of like profound to not speak a word for five days. I've never gone back. So I don't know if I can say I've like integrated it into
0: my life. But it was great. Well, that's what I wonder. When you come out of the five days, are you just a jabber jar? You're like, you know what? That was fine.
1: One of the things that was interesting, and this is fitting on a, you know, show where we're talking about cooking is like, everybody was so lovely because they were all silent. And so like, people were like, bringing me extra lentils and like, extra like parsnips and then more Mm -hmm. lentil, like everybody was loving and very like, everybody felt like Buddha. And then as soon as people start talking, and they're like, "Ah, I don't have a the airport. And like, you're like, don't talk, don't talk. So it, it made me realize that if we could just like all of us be silent for two years, I think we mm-hmm. could actually heal politics. But once you start talking and everyone's like, ah, I didn't really like my, you know, ashram leader, blah, blah. And you're mm-hmm. like, oh, shh, shh, shh.
0: That's what, maybe that's what we should try. I like that idea. If we just have, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it would work. Oh, wait, Twitter. Also, lentils. <laughs> How many lentils? So a lot there of lentils. Just the kind of the the crunchies and of there's like good. mealy kinds or like those beautiful puy lentil from France.
1: No, it was those like red, you know, those like red lentils, like the biblical oh. lentils. They were very good. But yeah, okay. I, I also don't eat a lot of lentils <laughs> or go on silent retreats. So maybe <laughs> there's a lesson there.
0: <laughs> I think there's a couple lessons there. I think we should get started making this dish, which people would be interested to. I think this would be a great live show to do. If anybody's interested, uh, we could do a four hour discussion about the future of the Supreme Court and make Tadig. You are an expert Tadig maker. Can you help the people at home who don't have a clue what Tadig is?
1: So this is a Persian dish. And it's essentially, I think I may have just said this to your brother, because I'm not a huge cookie person. I don't have like a secret cookie recipe. I'm a salty person more than a, a sweets person. So this is like a huge rice cookie. It's just a big crispy rice cookie. And I think I might just show you the picture. I'm working out of, this is actually the only recipe that I've ever found that works. They almost all come apart, but this is from... Uh, the Michael Solomonov uh, Zahav cookbook. And like, it comes out if you're doing it right. It, see that picture? And it's gorgeous. Beautiful. It's got this crispy, turmeric-y, gorgeous, crunchy thing. And my mother is Iraqi. I'm half Iraqi. So like for us, mac and cheese, not a thing. Rice, 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 rice. And the like crispy... Stuff at the bottom of the pot, if you're doing it right, like that's gold. And somebody told me once at a restaurant that there's like 48 different names for that in Arabic. Like it's like you know how they say there's like 26 words for snow. Right. Um, There's so many names for like this crusty, crispy, crunchy, ricey bottom stuff that becomes this top stuff. So that's (laughs) just a delivery mechanism for that, which has all those names.
0: And the like in Spanish when you make paella, there's this the crunchy crust has the name socarrat, which so they have it. in, in Korean, they make a uh, in Korea they make a dish where you have the you you make the soup, and then at the end you get to scrape up all the crunchy rice on the bottom. So it's a it's a universally delicious and well received thing. We're going to talk about your incredible children later, but you did something for my incredible child today. My sixteen and almost seventeen-year-old son came down the stairs, probably ten minutes late. If his teachers are listening, it was him. It wasn't me. I tried to get him out of bed, but he came down the stairs, and I was like, "Yeah, well, if you're going to come home, I'm doing my podcast, and you know, don't come stopping in the house." And he's like, "Oh, what are you making?" And I'm like, "Tadik," and he's like, "You are? I've wanted to make tadik for like two weeks now." And I was like, "How do you even know what tadik is, right?" And he he's like, "You know, I think he looks at like rice." pornography sites or something because he's that kind of kid and uh, must have come across this and he was like he's he's so excited and it's thanks to you and you don't always see that in you know teenagers so I appreciate that
1: I was going to show you this and then we could really start cooking but as I was (laughs) in my kitchen this is what my 17 year old recently left me can you it's a little blurry so can you tell me what it is please wash your lipstick off of cups and mugs period it doesn't (laughs) Come out in the dishwasher. And then there's a please underlined. So that is my otherwise dreamy 17 year old just leaving me a little reminder <laughs> of how to be better. So yours wins today, not. Today.
0: <laughs> um, but the difference is your child is doing the dishes. So, um, Oliver, if you're listening, you're a great kid, but could you do the dishes without me having to ask? Let's start this process and then let's. Um, the process starts by we have been soaking rice, which is beautiful jasmine rice, for overnight or for at least an hour. And I've been doing it for I don't know a good four or five hours. So I'm going to drain the rice. Is that? I'm draining mine too. And here
1: is where I get it. And this goes back to the silent retreat, Marissa, rinse yes. All about the water and the draining. Like nobody believes us about this. Like people don't understand. You got to rinse it. You got. Yep
0: touch it, you gotta rinse it a cut like it's all so then like then it is when you're touching it. So my job is to wash all that starch off. Exactly. And, and so it's you, like we let, it so really
1: let it soak. And my husband like really does like get his hands in the race and touch it and push it around because he says it's very meditative so this is partly about making rice and having this one stuff, and
0: partly about finding a little zen in your in your rice preparation. and and this i think todding is sort of a like probably a very good meal around the holidays anyway because of that meditative aspect it takes time
1: it does take time this is not a recipe like you can't be like, oh, people are coming for dinner in seven minutes. I'm making this <laughs> thing that takes
0: hours. But it's right. also super easy. It's like easy but tasty. Mm-hmm. Gonna- so I've I've rinsed my rice and I've got a pot on the stove, my mother's pot. I think this is the kind of meal you need to make in like some heirloom pot that you have because years of – I mean, you do you have like the family tadig pot?
1: I do not. <laughs> um, and in fact – I often use a pot that uh, I got because I advertised for it on Amicus, my podcast, and they like sent me a pot and then, but I thought I'd feel a little filthy, like using (laughs) that I like got grifting, like for my podcast, I'm actually using another one, but you're going to have to fill your like pot or heirloom pot or grifting pot with water.
0: (laughs) The grifting pot. I just
1: want to thank all my advertisers on the show for all the things that they make me feel good about. Okay.
0: And now we're going to dump the rice in, right?
1: And now we are going to, we're actually, first we're going to, have you dumped your rice yet? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, then that's what we're doing. Um, You're (laughs) kind of supposed to bring it to a boil, but you can, I think you can just do what you're doing. And also we're going to salt it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, maybe I should just drain it again. I mean I can happily do that. And the people at home maybe won't even hear this and and, and <laughs> <laughs> I want you should
1: kind of bring it to a boil first, as I understand. All
0: right. And for people I hope the run the rushing water that people hear at home is soothing this time of year. It's like your own sort of retreat. We never thought that this would be a soothing spa like experience. But listen, people, listen to the rushing waters.
1: And and here's where, because at least nominally I am a Supreme Court reporter, I will say that in COVID, when the Supreme Court went to audio oral arguments, mm. the biggest story for two years was that one of the justices flushed the toilet in the middle <gasps> of arguments and everybody heard it. Like it was the flush heard round the world. And um I think the Betting with that it was Mrs. Breyer. Unsurprising
0: to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you had to bet, it would be him. So we're gonna put a, a heap of salt in and we're gonna bring it to a boil and then we'll put those the nice rice in. And it's two cups of rice. And I will um reprint this on my substack for those who want to make it at home. And Mark, my husband, if you're listening, I don't have the Zahab cookbook and I love it for oh, the holidays. Mark,
1: this is life-changing because I will tell you the other recipe in here, I think I should not speak out of turn. I think his hummus recipe. His hummus is the best hummus really? I've
0: ever eaten exactly. in my life.
1: And that I actually, that's a Rebecca Tracer. If we're going to talk about women journalists, Rebecca yes. actually is the one who pointed me because the ice
0: cubes were completely undiscernible reasons.
1: You put the yes. ice cubes in.
0: When you're blending it. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Why? I haven't actually studied the recipe that closely because I have never made his recipe. Mm-hmm. I only get it, she says as she goes to the refrigerator. Sometimes from some of the um CSAs that I have, will because I don't live that far from Philadelphia, we get Zahab hummus from Zahab. Oh Here's God. a little teeny tiny container of it, everybody. And it's that good. It's in the container. You know, good. I'm like, smiegel it's the precious. It's the precious." <laughs> um, <laughs> so, When you and I could meet in the middle at the hob and have the feast of a lifetime, I I think he is an incredible chef. And he has a a restaurant, another one in Philadelphia, where he makes savory rugelach that he serves out of a cigar box. And it's like a beautiful presentation. And it's just an exquisite meal. That would be a brilliant date. Yeah. I'll meet you there.
1: Is this right, Marissa? Somebody told me he just opened a place in Brooklyn. Is that possible? And the I, mean,
0: I think I think that is true.
1: Very long. Oh, I think there's a. Only- oh,
0: wait, that's closer.
1: <laughs> I could meet you there. Okay. Uh, so, what are you doing? once this is is yours boiling or not quite yet?
0: No, it's not going to take. It's not going to boil for years, probably. Mm-hmm. So, you we keep going. Let me let me ask you a few questions, actually. Yes. Um, I I don't want to overlap too much with um. My brother, beloved brother, who talked to you about because yesterday there was um, quite a bit of to do at the Supreme Court because of basically what I heard, like made up arguments for a made up law that they were trying to enact. What what, can you give us like the, the, the childlike primer? for this.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it doesn't have to be child. First of all, it's a really complicated case
0: and. Okay, good. Because I felt a little.
1: No, 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 no. I've been trying to like, you know, ring the alarm about this case for two years. I think it is the most consequential democracy kind of busting case, uh, certainly of my career. Like it's in the like Bush v. Gore category and nobody knows about it because it's super abstract. So I'll give you the thumbnail. The thumbnail is. When we learned on Schoolhouse Rock about checks and balances and that mm-hmm. you could you could think what we learned, yeah, I will. <laughs> there's separate branches and they check each other, right? And if one of them goes crazy, the others can check them. And for 233 years, it would seem that was working. And suddenly, right. North Carolina, the Republican-led le- legislature did a crazy gerrymander where they were like, let's take a state that's like basically 50, 50 Republicans and Democrats And let's carve it up in such a way that the Republicans get 10 seats and the Democrats get four. That seems fair. And so they were pushing ahead with this map. And the state Supreme Court of North Carolina under the state constitution said, oh, hell no, this is unconstitutional. Right. And instead of drawing new maps, the North Carolina Republican led legislature said, "Oh, here's our theory now. Our theory is that the constitution gives what's called plenary, that means mm-hmm. an unreviewable authority to the legislature to set all election matters. Time place and matter, everything gets decided by the by the legislature and it cannot be checked. It cannot be reviewed by state courts under the state constitution. Oh, and the governor, right, can't veto. So basically left to their own right your face is the face
0: <laughs> no one this is I, i'm sorry podcast people i am <laughs> I, I look do i look dim you confused look pale.
1: you look pale yeah, I look a little pale <laughs> because it's insane it's insane and what they're essentially saying is in the 30 states that are controlled by republican legislatures they can set their own laws they can do away with mail-in voting they can do away with sunday voting They can close polling places. They can gerrymander. Doesn't matter. There's no check. Right. So like you can sing Schoolhouse Rock again. This is not how it's supposed to work. By the way, in blue states, presumably you could do the same thing. Right. It's insane. And the U.S. Supreme Court heard a sort of early emergency version of this case, batted it away. But we have now three, maybe four justices who've expressed real interest in this theory. It's called the Independent state legislature doctrine and doctrine uh-huh. uh, podcast listeners. I've got air quotes because it's definitely air quotes, not a doctrine, it's something that is entirely fictional. And they went to the Supreme Court on Wednesday and said, It is our position that since the founding, legislatures in states have had unreviewable, uncheckable authority to do what they will with elections. Nothing that the st- state Supreme Court has to say about this matters fight me. And so yesterday was the, like, that
0: was the oral argument. It was three hours. Was there a lawyer snuffle up, I guess? I mean, I'm just, if this is made up in, uh, out of thin air, then how, how do they, how did they argue that it was a real thing?
1: Well, part of the argument, I'm, I'm going to put my rice in my boiling water, just in the interest of not wasting boiling water, but
0: no rush. Please.
1: Go ahead. I mean, the argument, partly this is the crazy part, right? So they're saying it has ever been this. There was an amazing moment when the lawyer was all of the colonies did this. And Justice Sotomayor was like, huh, I'm not counting. (laughs) And he said, wait, I shall prove to you. And she's like, well, if you make up history, you can. Which was like the only laugh out your like snot out your nose laugh line. They like (laughs) rely on a document that's a forgery. (laughs) Like they lie on bad history. Every historian in the country is on the side of like, this is stupid. People like Michael Ludig, he was the conservative judge who almost got John Roberts' seat, have called this total bunk. He's in this case on the side of the challengers. Stephen Calabresi, the guy who invented the Federalist Society, is on the side. Like, nobody is on the side. Wow. Last thing, it will surprise you not at all that the guy who is on the side of the North Carolina Red State Legislature. Is John Eastman the guy who convinced him he (laughs) could just set aside the 2020 election? So not snuffleupagus, but like snuffleupagus caliber patriots.
0: Yeah, I want to do another like. I want to do another reference to like the 70s and 80s. So forgive me, but do you remember Doug Henning, the magician? It's an illusion, and I just think maybe they all went to the Doug Henning School of Law. I'm just—I just, I just did guess.
1: Well, it's the uh, the other crazy thing, which is just even more like Doug Henning and also eighties, is that part of where they get this cockamamie idea that we all just fail to notice that state legislatures are, can't be checked is because then Chief Justice Rehnquist wrote an opinion in Bush v. Gore. It got two other votes, so not the majority; it was a concurrence. Where he was like, "I'm just making shit up as I go along," but. I think that the Florida Supreme Court overstepped when it like batted away the Florida legislature because maybe some things aren't reviewable. So it wasn't it was literally Rehnquist fan fiction that we were seeing.
0: <laughs> Rehnquist. and do you read a lot of Rehnquist fan fiction? Is that how you get yourself?
1: It was they don't pay me enough, my friend.
0: <laughs> For you know, I have said this before on my podcast but never have I ever been so, has it been so necessary for me to have an understanding of the law than the last four, five, six years, right? I mean, Bush v. Gore was, seemed like a blip, so I didn't really feel like I needed to have gone to law school. Is, is it just me? I mean, you're, you're a, a legal mind. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? That like, every, there's so much more, there are so many more criminal cases, uh, just so many more cases uh, that we we're aware of on the news that come up thanks a lot to Donald Trump.
1: Yeah. I was going to say, you just answered your own question. I think it's, mm. if you have a president for whom law
0: is <laughs> no
1: <laughs> obstacle, then suddenly, I mean, I, I should just note that I'm draining my rice. I cooked it until it just got crunchy for like a minute.
0: And I, Oh, that's all. Yeah. Okay.
1: You just want it to be like crunchy and not rice. And now I'm draining it. But yeah, I think you answered your own question. I think when you have Mm -hmm. a president who the first, second in office is like, "Eh, let's ban all the Muslims. And that's (laughs) like, now let's go after like trans service members. And now let's like separate families. You, I mean, just to get through the day, you needed a law
0: degree. I, I felt that way. But luckily we have people like you. And I want to dive into the topic of your book because it is such a brilliant book. And definitely like, you know, on your Christmas list, people get it for not just the women in your life, not just the lawyers in your life, but I think all, all humans should read it. It's a very important book. And, you know, I, I always end up reading, like when I have people who've written a book like you, I go and also read the book reviews of the book just to see what people are saying about it. And I was struck that a lot of the the kind of the angle that a lot of the reviewers took was we thought this would be a book that was out of date before it was even published, you know, because it literally, it went to press as Roe versus Wade was drifting off in a cloud. And they all then, they have that great turn, you know, as we as journalists, we're always looking for that turn. And the turn was, no, this is a guidebook for today and the future. And I, having read it, believe that. And I, I, that's why I think everyone should have a copy. And it, it's not going to be like, a history book it will act as a history book but also as a fantastic guide for people what was your goal when you set out to write this
1: it was both of those things partly that i wanted to keep a record like i wanted to like mm-hmm. be really clear of like the tick tock of what had happened i felt as though things that had like shocked and horrified us like the travel ban <laughs> you know like they were stopped. right migrant teens at the border who were allowed to have an abortion under federal law from leaving the shelter, right? Like they were so crazy. And I think we almost forget. So there was a big part of this that was simply, I want to record this. And one of the things a lot of folks say when they read it is like, oh God, I forgot how awful some of that was.
0: (laughs) Yes. I think it's like we would be trying to repress pain. I I also, I don't, for people, I have to stop and uh, insert something, which is, I have to be very clear that this is a book about, if you didn't get it from my, my rushing through the subtitle, about the women who took democracy, took the law into their own hands, in a sense, in order to preserve our democracy over the past during the Trump administration.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, that was the other piece of it, was that I was really struck as I was covering these stories in real time after 2017, How many women were like surging into leadership in these lawsuits? Like how many, every time I looked around, there was some woman spearheading some case, some suit. It is by no means my implication that men weren't doing it, but just that I was really blown away by the women. So as you said, Mm -hmm. I wanted to tell these stories. Each of them is an amazing kind of like law and order TikTok of some incredible, you know, lawsuit. But more than anything, I think I wanted to sort of lift up the idea that we just saw resurfaced in the midterms, which is everybody was like, oh, women, they're over jobs. That sucked. You know, all they care about is gas prices. And now yeah. moved on to the next thing. And you and I knew that wasn't true. And so I think this is a book that's kind of a love letter to these twin ideas of like women and organizing and power and democracy and voting and all this stuff. But also, I think a love letter to the idea that like ordinary people who nobody knows their names and like we don't have like the RBG mug and the throw pillow, they change the world and like they should be credited with that. So that I think was mm-hmm. the, the animating spirit.
0: I wanted to talk just a little bit, a little bit of background about this woman that I knew oh, absolutely. No, Polly Murray, Saint Polly, actually, as it turns out, right? They, she was sanctified. I mean. What an amazing story. Incredible. And like goes to like this point about. African-American woman who is like rejected by every single school and every single everything goes to Howard becomes. The, she's like this first black attorney general or deputy attorney general of California. California.
1: Uh, no, it's unbelievable. It's everywhere. Like every law library in the country should have a Pauli Murray. And nobody's, including me, like I went to law school for three years. Nobody's ever heard of Polly Murray. And I should say here that Polly Murray was certainly, I think, gender nonconforming and might want to be called they today. Even okay. Polly Murray died many years before the Trump era. But you're exactly right. This is a, a person who, commending to people the amazing movie, My Name is Pauli Murray by Julie yeah. and Betsy West, because like it will knock your socks up. But you're exactly right. At every turn in history, Polly Murray's like the where's Waldo? <laughs> like, <Pauli> Polly <laughs> literally writes a law school paper at Howard that they use to become like the spine of the argument in Brown versus Board of Education, except they don't put Polly Murray's name on the brief. Polly Murray writes what Ruth Bader Ginsburg will later use as the like seminal argument to use the 14th Amendment. <laughs> in gender discrimination cases, lifts Pauli Murray's work, at least credits Pauli Murray. Like every single place that Pauli Murray puts their hands on becomes this historic thing. And yet history has completely vaporized most memory of Pauli Murray. And so I am obsessed with Pauli Murray, but I'm more obsessed with how it is that some people get to be RBG and some people get to be Pauli Murray. And so this book, as I said, I wanted to really be mindful of how much of women's Mm -hmm. constitutional history is done by people who are like working, working, working in the vineyards for like decades without recognition, without credit. And so I start the book with Polly Murray as a way of saying like, you know, we're all like in mourning for RBG, like, oh, she's gone. We have no one to lead us. And my argument is there's like Ruth Baby Ginsburg's like all around us
0: doing the work. Did you say Ruth Baby Ginsburgs? Because that would be cute. I did say. That. <laughs> <laughs> you also feature in this book. You put, as as we like to say, you put the me and me too. And uh, that was a very painful <laughs> chapter in your life, but also a very it was a very painful, moving chapter to read about you sort of having to come to terms with experiences you'd had and put off. And and I'd love it if you could talk a little bit about. Give everybody the you know the lead on what happened, but also why you then decided. Oh no, I, I mean, I, my my experience isn't relevant. I don't need to do anything about it. But then you did.
1: So this was actually, I mean, this chapter is sort of again rooted in reporting that I did in the Trump years.
0: Something. That and am I going to pour oil into the pan now? I'm going to
1: pour oil. I actually did it wrong. If it makes you feel, feel better, you know how you like prematurely rice on the last go round. I poured the rice in before putting my comer again. So, <laughs> no, right. This was something that um, I wrote about um, when it happened, which is that there was a judge. Uh, at some point, he was the chief judge of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Mm-hmm. And I had clerked on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and I knew that everybody said, oh, it's like an open secret, this guy shows porn to his clerks, and... <gasps> Um, talks inappropriately to the women clerks, and he has all these, like, newsletters that he sends out with porn and dirty jokes. Everyone knew it. Everybody knew it. You know, law professors knew it. Judges knew it. Everybody knew it. No one did anything. And Jeez. at one point, one of his clerks, Heidi Bond, mm-hmm. writes uh, novels under the pen name Courtney Milan.
0: Mm. Came forward. Yeah, I was thinking I might pick one of those
1: up. Oh, she's good. She's really good. Yeah. <laughs> Emily Murphy, who um, clerked for a different judge on the Ninth Circuit, both came forward and said, he did this to me. And instead of apologizing or taking it seriously, Judge Kaczynski just kind of walked him off. He slightly belittled how he writing as a romance novelist. So I just decided it was time for me to stop keeping my part of it secret, and I wrote about it. And at, at, at some point, you know, fourteen different women all came forward and all reported the same
0: thing. I just want to pause and say, I've heated up the oil, I've put in the turmeric, and I've now dumped the rice in. Right. And am I supposed to smush it down now?
1: Yes, you're gonna smoosh it down and they're saying the recipe says like lightly press it. You wanna have it be sort of flat.
0: hmm And then- But but I'm not mixing the, the turmeric around. I'm no, just the
1: turmeric that's and it's so funny. I think I might say this word wrong because of my mom. No.
0: I'm from a family that says paprika because my grandmother was Hungarian. So. so there you go. And people are, people are always like, what? I'm like, paprika? So yeah. You're right.
1: and That's going to form your like crispy, you, crispy deliciousness.
0: And, and then I'm supposed to pour the like oil and water over it. You're going to do that later. Quarter?
1: quarter. No, I think you're
0: doing it now. Hold on one quick second. I'm just making sure. Yeah, you're going to... People, this is real cooking that's going on. (laughs) It's real cooking.
1: Even though we both put the rice in and had to drain the rice. I think we've now had seven (laughs) between us. But you're going to take a quarter cup of water and some oil and some salt and pour it over. Once you've flattened this sucker down, you're going to pour it over. And then... Hold on, where's my water? And then... This is the only time in my life I will ever tell my Me Too story and cook simultaneously and it's not going super well and you're gonna have it be on as I recall low like you want it on low and then we'll do the one tricky part and then I'm gonna be like laser focused on podcasting but the one tricky part is you've got to do this thing where you put the lid on top and the lid of the pot this is crazy (laughs) needs to be <laughs> and then rubber band it so you don't set yourself on fire or your loved
0: ones. top t- top t- you or your loved ones or your home. <laughs> <laughs> and
1: then you're gonna cover it and just let it go. And then we can actually have meaningful, earnest <laughs> Article Three Judiciary <laughs> conversation. <laughs> but once people go, that's the that's the trick. But then once you cover it, the magic can begin.
0: Okay. The line that really stood out to me, mostly because I'm a hypochondriac, is you've written this story. I mean, and it was really pouring out your guts here. You talk about it being, you talked to Rebecca Drazer about living right now, I'm living the first lines of my obituary, which is just a beautiful line. But you said, I stood outside the entrance to an urgent care clinic next to my hotel reasonably convinced that I was experiencing a heart attack, which you weren't, thanks be. But when did you finally feel that you'd you'd known that you'd done the right thing? Two things happened.
1: One, and I mean, I think this is like the guts of the thing for me was that I had kept a secret for 20 years and other people who came after me were harmed, right? Mm -hmm. And so many of the Me Too stories, like I'm thinking of Harvey Weinstein, so many of them People come forward because they're like, I didn't want to come forward. I hate this. And then I found out if I had, maybe I could have saved someone else from this. And that was extremely painful for me. Mm. And the other thing that I wanted to be super clear about was that it wasn't so much a me two story. It wasn't like he the stuff that he had said to me when I was clerking was trivial, like stupid, sexualized stuff. But he didn't harass me or hurt me. The problem Mm. was that I knew all this other stuff I had told young women in law school not to clerk for him. We talked about it with law. I mean, my problem was we all kept this secret. And then we just sent generations of other young lawyers into the wood chipper. And they did it because, and we should say this, like he was a feeder judge to the Supreme Court. His former clerks include Brett Kavanaugh. And he, you know, he was- They must have gotten along great. Well, you know, it was funny because um, Maisie Hirono at Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing said, like, look, guy, you were the one who was vetting his clerks for years and years. And you're telling me you didn't know any of this. And yeah. it would have been a good time for then Judge now Justice Kavanaugh to be like, yeah, I knew, you know, everybody knew. But instead he was shocked. shocked In fact, his his he said, I called him. I was worried about him. This was so hard on him. And it was like, OK, so that was a pretty good, like,
0: yeah, that was <laughs> an in-
1: pretty that. good. In- Christine Blasey Ford was going to go. <laughs> But I think maybe the answer to the specific question is I expected much more abuse and hatred and Mm vitriol, especially because, like you said, we live in an age of Twitter and people were lovely. Like almost everybody, you know, said to me, yeah, we knew we knew, you know, thanks for taking one for the team. And he did step down. I should note, in case folks don't recognize his name, he just signed on to be one of of Donald Trump's lawyers in the last two weeks. And he's representing Trump. Your face again, you're making that.
0: (laughs) You're making the face, people. I'm going to post that face so people can see. It's the (laughs)
1: independent state legislature face. But yeah, he's he's not only representing Trump now in a case, but he made the claim in a brief recently that Donald Trump is the Galileo of our time. Uh most likely right about COVID restrictions. He was right about the possibility that the 2020 election was stolen by Biden. Like we all just fail to understand that history is going to vindicate Donald Trump and put aside this as yet another sort of story of somebody who manages to like claw their way back into the public sphere. But it's, emblematic of this huge problem, which is also true of Justice Kavanaugh, which is there's no investigation.
0: None. 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 You know, we have these gutsy women. Why aren't we leading a, an investigation into these people?
1: I, I mean, part of the problem is that if you are a federal judge, in Kavanaugh's oh. case, the minute he was elevated onto the Supreme Court, the investigation against him died, right? There were multiple people who came forward and wanted to to tell the FBI what they knew about him. The whole investigation died with Kaczynski. The minute he stepped down, the investigation died. So he retires with a full pension and we never know. We will never know what happened, but it's part of this larger chapter in the book where I'm sort of trying to think about the me too movement as something that is like amazing and profound and wonderful for all the reasons that it has helped a lot of women, but it's not a process. Like we need investigation Mm -hmm. and finding of facts and conclusions. And that chapter kind of ends with Christine Blasey Ford, who really like fell on a grenade for everyone. And then we just sort of stepped over her and kept going.
0: Right. Um, Which was, I think, just a day I walked around sort of, And not with my jaw agape like now, but just feeling sort of as if I've been crying for three weeks, that sort of exhausted feeling that we're we're never, if if she isn't heard and the way that she was talked down to by people, there's little hope, but we have to wrap this thing up and we'll meet again in five hours to check on the, (laughs) to dig, but, um, there was a very hopeful note and that I think that hopeful note is the one that just appeared in your kitchen. You did this extraordinarily, I see, is as brave thing. And you sat down with your kids and your husband before the story was published, and you said that, and you explained what you were going to do. You then, and I'm I'm telling your story for you, so forgive me, but I, I just want to I, I want to get to the point where you're about to go into speak in a hotel just at you know at a conference just after your story has launched, and you get a note. And that just was the most amazing thing. Would you share that with people, please? Maybe your son Yeah. No, it's
1: my older son. I should note. My younger son is a little pissed off because he appears in the book to say the most profound but nihilistic thing in the book, which is when the Charlottesville Nazis are amassing and we lived in Charlottesville when they marched with torches in uh, 2017. He was the one who said at the ripe old age of like 12. Problem with Nazis is if you engage with them, you lose. But if you like ignore them, you lose. Which was like, I think the like most seminal comment of our time. But he's like, how come Kobe gets to be the hero and I'm like the broken nihilist in your book? So let's not tell him about um his brother, but his brother was amazing. Uh, Marissa, his brother, as I was panicking about like hitting publish on this story, that we had fact-checked a thousand times, it's late, and there were multiple mm-hmm. witnesses. There was no question it was true and my son my older son called and
0: just said he was 14 at the time let's also point that out so that's not you know that old
1: i mean and also like he's not mushy in any way shape or form like he's a, a pretty tough cookie and he called and said um sometimes in order for other people to tell their stories you have to tell yours like you have to do this hard thing because You are making space for other people to do the hard thing. And the other thing I say at the very end of that chapter, which was so magical, is that Heidi Bond, who we talked about, and Emily Murphy, the two first women who came forward much braver than I, I scrambled a phone call with them and Anita Hill. And I said, let's just like, maybe the three, four of us can just talk for 20 minutes because we're freaking out. And we thought he was going to sue us. And we thought we were going to jail and our careers were over. And Professor Hill, I I said, I was in the conference room at the Brooklyn Bureau at Slade and she said, I said, um, I just want you all to know, you know, my my son's on this call because he's been amazing. And she said, put him on the phone. <laughs> and She like leaned oh. in, and he was on the speaker and she said, I just want to thank you because people are you like you are gonna change the world. And I was just like, Man, oh man, oh man, oh man, oh man. And it's true. Like that's the other midterm story, right? Like these Gen Zs, (laughs) unbelievable.
0: So I think that note is the hopeful note to end on because I see it in my own kids who have a much greater concern for and a much, a much better view of history and what the future could be if they and they know they have to do something about it, which causes them a lot of angst. But they know what they have to do, and it's it's just nice to hear your stories. Before we go, what happens to the TADIG next?
1: we are going to, believe it or not, you're gonna let it sit under that thing, under that mm-hmm. weird flammable tea towel of doom, <laughs> but you you start checking it at like 30 minutes in, but it can mm-hmm. take, like it really can take like two hours. It depends on your heat and everything else and you leave it on super low. And then you essentially just check to make sure that you've got that like golden lovely crust on the bottom. And then you flip it, you flip it onto a plate and a lot of people throw like raisins and almonds and, you know, lovely Mm. Middle Eastern treats on it. And you like present it. Like, I promise you, when you present this, people will make your like independent state legislature face. Like they'll go like,
0: (gasps) (gasps) I hope so. And would you serve it at like family dinners and things like that? As as a kid, would your mom make it like that?
1: My mom made a different, different type of rice. This is much more Persian. My mother's much more um, Iraqi. And so I think this is Mm -hmm. not per se. I mean, she's made it and I've made it with her, but I think um, it's a big wedding food. And I think actually Mm -hmm. um, in the Zahav cookbook, he like talks about how this is like a pretty common persian wedding food but i do make it for like holiday dinners for like sabbath Mm -hmm. dinners like i definitely make it when i have people coming over and like they're about to be like they think they're eating something astonishing and it's just like as you just saw rice and water but it's so (laughs) gorgeous Mm -hmm. and i've tried to make this for years and couldn't crack it and then this recipe seems to be
0: like the one so thank you very much for all of this. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the book. Please, everybody, like the season of giving is here. Give it to people. Donate it to your library. Donate to school libraries, actually, high school libraries. Send it to people on Audible if they're not going to read books as well. And I hope you'll come on again and maybe we can cook something, maybe faster or not. And I would like to talk about the future of the Supreme Court when you come on next, maybe, please.
1: Yeah. And let's promise that that conversation will also be better than the one I am about to have someday that day with your brother.
0: (laughs) Thank you all for listening. I appreciate your tuning in. You can find Dahlia's book wherever fine books are sold. And please follow me at marissarothkopf.substack.com for recipes. Thank you for your support and have a great week.